Book the Third, Chapter Nine, Part Two, of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Geeson. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Book the Third, Chapter Nine, Part Two. Where did my last letter end? I don't remember, and don't care. Make it out as you can. I'm not going back any further than this day week. That is to say, Sunday last. There was a thunderstorm in the morning. It began to clear off toward noon. I didn't go out. I waited to see Midwinter, or to hear from him. Are you surprised at my not writing Mr. before his name? We have got so familiar, my dear, that Mr. would be quite out of place. He had left me the evening before, under very interesting circumstances. I had told him that his friend Armadale was persecuting me by means of a hired spy. He had declined to believe it, and had gone straight to Thorpe Ambrose to clear the thing up. I let him kiss my hand before he went. He promised to come back the next day, the Sunday. I felt I had secured my influence over him, and I believed he would keep his word. Well, the thunder passed away as I told you. The weather cleared up, the people walked out in their best clothes, the dinners came in from the baker's. I sat dreaming at my wretched little hired piano, nicely dressed and looking my best and still no midwinter appeared. It was late in the afternoon, and I was beginning to feel offended when a letter was brought to me. It had been left by a strange messenger who went away again immediately. I looked at the letter. Midwinter at last. In writing instead of in person. I began to feel more offended than ever. For, as I told you, I thought I had used my influence over him to better purpose. The letter, when I read it, set my mind off in a new direction. It surprised, it puzzled, it interested me. I thought and thought and thought of him all the rest of the day. He began by asking my pardon for having doubted what I told him. Mr. Armadale's own lips had confirmed me. They had quarrelled, as I had anticipated they would, and he and the man who had once been his dearest friend on earth had parted for ever. So far I was not surprised. I was amused by his telling me in his extravagant way that he and his friend were parted for ever, and I rather wondered what he would think when I carried out my plan and found my way into the great house on pretence of reconciling them. But the second part of the letter set me thinking. Here it is, in his own words. It is only by struggling against myself, and no language can say how hard the struggle has been, that I have decided on writing instead of speaking to you. A merciless necessity claims my future life. I must leave Thorpe Ambrose. I must leave England, without hesitating, without stopping to look back. There are reasons, terrible reasons, which I have madly trifled with, for
for my never letting Mr. Armadale set eyes on me, or hear of me again, after what has happened between us. I must go, never more to live under the same roof, never more to breathe the same air with that man. I must hide myself from him under an assumed name. I must put the mountains and the seas between us. I have been warned as no human creature was ever warned before. I believe, I dare not tell you why, I believe that if the fascination you have for me draws me back to you, fatal consequences will come of it to the man whose life has been so strangely mingled with your life and mine, the man who was once your admirer and my friend. And yet, feeling this, seeing it in my mind as plainly as I see the sky above my head, there is a weakness in me that still shrinks from the one imperative sacrifice of never seeing you again. I am fighting with it as a man fights with the strength of his despair. I have been near enough, not an hour since, to see the house where you live, and have forced myself away again out of sight of it. Can I force myself away further still, now that my letter is written? Now when the useless confession escapes me, and I own to loving you with the first love I have ever known, with the last love I shall ever feel? Let the coming time answer the question. I dare not write of it or think of it more. Those were the last words. In that strange way the letter ended. I felt a perfect fever of curiosity to know what he meant. His loving me, of course, was easy enough to understand. But what did he mean by saying he had been warned? Why was he never to live under the same roof, never to breathe the same air again with young Armadale? What sort of quarrel could it be which obliged one man to hide himself from another under an assumed name, and to put the mountains and the seas between them? Above all, if he came back and let me fascinate him, why should it be fatal to the hateful lout who possesses the noble fortune and lives in the great house? I never longed in my life as I longed to see him again and put these questions to him. I got quite superstitious about it as the day drew on. They gave me a sweetbread and a cherry pudding for dinner. I actually tried if he would come back by the stones in the plate. He will, he won't, he will, he won't, and so on. It ended in he won't. I rang the bell and had the things taken away. I contradicted destiny quite fiercely. I said, he will and I waited at home for him. You don't know what a pleasure it is to me to give you all these little particulars. Count up, my bosom friend, my second mother, count up the money you have advanced on the chance of my becoming Mrs. Armadale, and then think of my feeling this breathless interest in another man. Oh, Mrs. Eldershaw, how intensely I enjoy the luxury of irritating you! The day got on toward evening. I rang again and sent down to borrow a railway timetable. What trains were there to take him away on Sunday? The national respect for the Sabbath stood my friend. 
There was only one train, which had started hours before he wrote to me. I went and consulted my glass. It paid me the compliment of contradicting the divination by cherry-stones. My glass said, Get behind the window-curtain. He won't pass the long, lonely evening without coming back again to look at the house. I got behind the window-curtain and waited with his letter in my hand. The dismal Sunday light faded, and the dismal Sunday quietness in the street grew quieter still. The dusk came, and I heard a step coming with it in the silence. My heart gave a little jump. Only think of my having any heart left. I said to myself, Midwinter, and Midwinter it was. When he came in sight he was walking slowly, stopping and hesitating at every two or three steps. My ugly little drawing-room window seemed to be beckoning him on, in spite of himself. After waiting till I saw him come to a standstill, a little aside from the house, but still within view of my irresistible window, I put on my things, and slipped out by the back way into the garden. The landlord and his family were at supper, and nobody saw me. I opened the door in the wall, and got round by the lane into the street. At that awkward moment I suddenly remembered what I had forgotten before. The spy set to watch me, who was no doubt waiting somewhere in sight of the house. It was necessary to get time to think, and it was, in my state of mind, impossible to let Midwinter go without speaking to him. In great difficulties you generally decide at once, if you decide at all. I decided to make an appointment with him for the next evening and to consider in the interval how to manage the interview so that it might escape observation. This, as I felt at the time, was leaving my own curiosity free to torment me for four-and-twenty mortal hours. But what other choice had I? It was as good as giving up being the mistress of Thorpe Ambrose altogether, to come to a private understanding with Midwinter in the sight and possibly in the hearing of Armadale's spy. Finding an old letter of yours in my pocket, I drew back into the lane, and wrote on the blank leaf with a little pencil that hangs at my watch-chain. I must and will speak to you. It is impossible to-night, but be in the street to-morrow at this time, and leave me afterward forever if you like. When you have read this, overtake me, and say as you pass, without stopping or looking round, Yes, I promise. I folded up the paper, and came on him suddenly from behind. As he started and turned round, I put the note into his hand, pressed his hand, and passed on. Before I had taken ten steps I heard him behind me. I can't say he didn't look round. I saw his big black eyes, bright and glittering in the dusk, devour me from head to foot in a moment. But otherwise he did what I told him. "'I can deny you nothing,' he whispered. "'I promise.' I couldn't help thinking at the time how that brute and booby Armadale would have spoiled everything in the same situation. I tried hard all night to think of a way of making our interview of the next evening safe from discovery. 
and tried in vain even as early as this i began to feel as if midwinter's letter had in some unaccountable manner stupefied me monday morning made matters worse news came from my faithful ally mr bashwood that miss milroy and armadale had met and become friends again you may fancy the state i was in an hour or two later there came more news from mr bashwood good news this time the mischievous idiot at thorpe ambrose had shown sense enough at last to be ashamed of himself he had decided on withdrawing the spy that very day and he and his lawyer had quarrelled in consequence so here was the obstacle which i was too stupid to remove for myself obligingly removed for me no more need to fret about the coming interview with midwinter and plenty of time to consider my next proceedings now that miss milroy and her precious swain had come together again would you believe it the letter or the man himself i don't know which had taken such a hold on me that though i tried and tried i could think of nothing else and this when i had every reason to fear that miss milroy was in a fair way of changing her name to armadale and when i knew that my heavy debt of obligation to her was not paid yet was there ever such perversity i can't account for it can you the dusk of the evening came at last i looked out of the window and there he was i joined him at once the people of the house as before being too much absorbed in their eating and drinking to notice anything else we mustn't be seen together here i whispered i must go on first and you must follow me he said nothing in the way of reply what was going on in his mind i can't pretend to guess but after coming to his appointment he actually hung back as if he was half inclined to go away again you look as if you were afraid of me i said i am afraid of you he answered of you and of myself it was not encouraging it was not complimentary but i was in such a frenzy of curiosity by this time that if he had been ruder still i should have taken no notice of it i led the way a few steps toward the new buildings and stopped and looked round after him must i ask it of you as a favour i said after your giving me your promise and after such a letter as you have written to me something suddenly changed him he was at my side in an instant i beg your pardon miss gwilt lead the way where you please he dropped back a little after that answer and i heard him say to himself what is to be will be what have i to do with it and what has she it could hardly have been the words for i didn't understand them it must have been the tone he spoke in i suppose that made me feel a momentary tremor i was half inclined without the ghost of a reason for it to wish him good-night and go in again not much like me you will say not much indeed it didn't last a moment your darling lydia soon came to her senses again i led the way toward the unfinished cottages and the country beyond 
it would have been much more to my taste to have had him into the house and have talked to him in the light of the candles but i had risked it once already and in this scandal-mongering place and in my critical position i was afraid to risk it again the garden was not to be thought of either for the landlord smokes his pipe there after supper there was no alternative but to take him away from the town from time to time i looked back as i went on there he was always at the same distance dim and ghost-like in the dusk silently following me i must leave off for a little while the church bells have broken out and the jangling of them drives me mad in these days when we have all got watches and clocks why are bells wanted to remind us when the service begins we don't require to be rung into the theatre how excessively discreditable to the clergy to be obliged to ring us into the church they have rung the congregation in at last and i can take up my pen and go on again i was in a little doubt where to lead him to the high road was on one side of me but empty as it looked somebody might be passing when we least expected it the other way was through the coppice i led him through the coppice at the outskirts of the trees on the other side there was a dip in the ground with some felled timber lying on it and a little pool beyond still and white and shining in the twilight the long grazing grounds rose over its further shore with the mist thickening on them and a dim black line far away of cattle in slow procession going home there wasn't a living creature near there wasn't a sound to be heard i sat down on one of the felled trees and looked back for him come i said softly come and sit by me here why am i so particular about all this i hardly know the place made an unaccountably vivid impression on me and i can't help writing about it if i end badly suppose we say on the scaffold i believe the last thing i shall see before the hangman pulls the drop will be the little shining pool and the long misty grazing grounds and the cattle winding dimly home in the thickening night don't be alarmed you worthy creature my fancies play me strange tricks sometimes and there is a little of last night's laudanum i dare say in this part of my letter he came in the strangest silent way like a man walking in his sleep he came and sat down by me either the night was very close or i was by this time literally in a fever i couldn't bear my bonnet on i couldn't bear my gloves the want to look at him and see what his singular silence meant and the impossibility of doing it in the darkening light irritated my nerves till i thought i should have screamed i took his hand to try if that would help me it was burning hot and it closed instantly on mine you know how silence after that was not to be thought of the one safe way was to begin talking to him at once don't despise me i said i am obliged to bring you to this lonely place i should lose my character if we were seen together 
I waited a little. His hand warned me once more not to let the silence continue. I determined to make him speak to me this time. "'You have interested me and frightened me,' I went on. "'You have written me a very strange letter. I must know what it means.' "'It is too late to ask. You have taken the way, and I have taken the way, from which there is no turning back.' He made that strange answer in a tone that was quite new to me, a tone that made me even more uneasy than his silence had made me the moment before. "'Too late,' he repeated, "'too late. There is only one question to ask me now. What is it?' As I said the words, a sudden trembling passed from his hand to mine, and told me instantly that I had better have held my tongue. Before I could move, before I could think, he had me in his arms. "'Ask me if I love you,' he whispered. At the same moment his head sank on my bosom, and some unutterable torture that was in him burst its way out, as it does with us, in a passion of sobs and tears. My first impulse was the impulse of a fool. I was on the point of making our usual protest and defending myself in our usual way. Luckily or unluckily, I don't know which, I have lost the fine edge of the sensitiveness of youth, and I checked the first movement of my hands and the first word on my lips. Oh, dear, how old I felt, while he was sobbing his heart out on my breast. How I thought of the time when he might have possessed himself of my love. All he had possessed himself of now was my waste. I wonder whether I pitied him. It doesn't matter if I did. At any rate, my hand lifted itself somehow, and my fingers twined themselves softly in his hair. Horrible recollections came back to me of other times, and made me shudder as I touched him and yet I did it. What fools women are! I won't reproach you, I said gently. I won't say this is a cruel advantage to take of me in such a position as mine. You are dreadfully agitated. I will let you wait a little and compose yourself. Having got as far as that, I stopped to consider how I should put the questions to him that I was burning to ask. But I was too confused, I suppose, or perhaps too impatient to consider. I let out what was uppermost in my mind, in the words that came first. "'I don't believe you love me,' I said. "'You write strange things to me. You frighten me with mysteries. What did you mean by saying in your letter that it would be fatal to Mr. Armadale if you came back to me? What danger can there be to Mr. Armadale?' Before I could finish the question, he suddenly lifted his head and unclasped his arms. I had apparently touched some painful subject which recalled him to himself. Instead of my shrinking from him, it was he who shrank from me. I felt offended with him. Why, I don't know, but offended I was, and I thanked him with my bitterest emphasis for remembering what was due to me at last. "'Do you believe in dreams?' 
he burst out in the most strangely abrupt manner without taking the slightest notice of what i had said to him tell me he went on without allowing me time to answer were you or was any relation of yours ever connected with alan armadale's father or mother were you or was anybody belonging to you ever in the island of madeira conceive my astonishment if you can i turned cold in an instant i turned cold all over he was plainly in the secret of what had happened when i was in mrs armadale's service in madeira in all probability before he was born that was startling enough of itself and he had evidently some reason of his own for trying to connect me with those events which was more startling still no i said as soon as i could trust myself to speak i know nothing of his father or mother and nothing of the island of madeira nothing of the island of madeira he turned his head away and began talking to himself strange he said as certainly as i was in the shadow's place at the window she was in the shadow's place at the pool under other circumstances his extraordinary behaviour might have alarmed me but after his question about madeira there was some greater fear in me which kept all common alarm at a distance i don't think i ever determined on anything in my life as i determined on finding out how he had got his information and who he really was it was quite plain to me that i had roused some hidden feeling in him by my question about armadale which was as strong in its way as his feeling for me what had become of my influence over him i couldn't imagine what had become of it but i could and did set to work to make him feel it again don't treat me cruelly i said i didn't treat you cruelly just now oh mr midwinter it's so lonely it's so dark don't frighten me frighten you he was close to me again in a moment frighten you he repeated the word with as much astonishment as if i had woke him from a dream and charged him with something he had said in his sleep it was on the tip of my tongue finding how i had surprised him to take him while he was off his guard and to ask why my question about armadale had produced such a change in his behaviour to me but after what had happened already i was afraid to risk returning to the subject too soon something or other what they call an instinct i dare say warned me to let armadale alone for the present and to talk to him first about himself as i told you in one of my early letters i had noticed signs and tokens in his manner and appearance which convinced me young as he was that he had done something or suffered something out of the common in his past life i had asked myself more and more suspiciously every time i saw him whether he was what he appeared to be and first and foremost among my other doubts was a doubt whether he was passing among us by his real name having secrets to keep about my own past life and having gone myself in other days by more than one assumed name i suppose i am all the readier to suspect other people when i find something mysterious about them anyway having the suspicion in my mind 
I determined to startle him, as he had startled me, by an unexpected question on my side, a question about his name. While I was thinking, he was thinking, and as it soon appeared of what I had just said to him. "'I am so grieved to have frightened you,' he whispered, with that gentleness and humility which we all so heartily despise in a man when he speaks to other women, and which we all so dearly like when he speaks to ourselves. "'I hardly know what I have been saying,' he went on. "'My mind is miserably disturbed. Pray forgive me if you can. I am not myself to-night.' "'I am not angry,' I said. "'I have nothing to forgive. We are both imprudent. We are both unhappy.' I laid my head on his shoulder. "'Do you really love me?' I asked him softly, in a whisper. His arm stole round me again, and I felt the quick beat of his heart get quicker and quicker. "'If you only knew,' he whispered back. "'If you only knew.' He could say no more. I felt his face bending towards mine, and dropped my head lower, and stopped him in the very act of kissing me. "'No,' I said. "'I am only a woman who has taken your fancy. You are treating me as if I was your promised wife.' "'Be my promised wife,' he whispered eagerly, and tried to raise my head. I kept it down. The horror of these old remembrances that you know of came back and made me tremble a little when he asked me to be his wife. I don't think I was actually faint, but something like faintness made me close my eyes. The moment I shut them, the darkness seemed to open as if lightning had split it, and the ghosts of those other men rose in the horrid gap and looked at me. "'Speak to me,' he whispered tenderly. "'My darling, my angel, speak to me.' His voice helped me to recover myself. I had just sense enough left to remember that the time was passing, and that I had not put my question to him yet about his name. "'Suppose I felt for you as you feel for me,' I said. Suppose I loved you dearly enough to trust you with the happiness of all my life to come. I paused for a moment to get my breath. It was still unbearably still and close. The air seemed to have died when the night came. Would you be marrying me honourably, I went on, if you married me in your present name? His arm dropped from my waist and I felt him give one great start. After that he sat by me, still and cold and silent, as if my question had struck him dumb. I put my arm round his neck, and lifted my head again on his shoulder. Whatever the spell was I had laid on him, my coming closer in that way seemed to break it. "'Who told you?' he stopped. "'No,' he went on. "'Nobody can have told you. What made you suspect?' He stopped again. "'Nobody told me,' I said, "'and I don't know what made me suspect. Women have strange fancies sometimes. 
is midwinter really your name i can't deceive you he answered after another interval of silence midwinter is not really my name i nestled a little closer to him what is your name i asked he hesitated i lifted my face till my cheek just touched his i persisted with my lips close at his ear what no confidence in me even yet no confidence in the woman who has almost confessed she loves you who has almost consented to be your wife he turned his face to mine for the second time he tried to kiss me and for the second time i stopped him if i tell you my name he said i must tell you more i let my cheek touch his again why not i said how can i love a man much less marry him if he keeps himself a stranger to me there was no answering that as i thought but he did answer it it is a dreadful story he said it may darken all your life if you know it as it has darkened mine i put my other arm around him and persisted tell it me i am not afraid tell it me he began to yield to my other arm will you keep it a sacred secret he said never to be breathed never to be known but to you and me i promised him it should be a secret i waited in a perfect frenzy of expectation twice he tried to begin and twice his courage failed him i can't he broke out in a wild helpless way i can't tell it my curiosity or more likely my temper got beyond control he had irritated me till i was reckless what i said or what i did i suddenly clasped him close and pressed my lips to his i love you i whispered in a kiss now will you tell me for the moment he was speechless i don't know whether i did it purposely to drive him wild i don't know whether i did it involuntarily in a burst of rage nothing is certain but that i interpreted his silence the wrong way i pushed him back from me in a fury the instant after i had kissed him i hate you i said you have maddened me into forgetting myself leave me i don't care for the darkness leave me instantly and never see me again he caught me by the hand and stopped me he spoke in a new voice he suddenly commanded as only men can sit down he said you have given me back my courage you shall know who i am in the silence and the darkness all around us i obeyed him and sat down in the silence and the darkness all around us he took me in his arms again and told me who he was shall i trust you with his story shall i tell you his real name shall i show you as i threatened the thoughts that have grown out of my interview with him and out of all that has happened to me since that time or shall i keep his secret as i promised and keep my own secret too 
by bringing this weary long letter to an end at the very moment when you are burning to hear more those are serious questions mrs oldershaw more serious than you suppose i have had time to calm down and i begin to see what i failed to see when i first took up my pen to write to you the wisdom of looking at consequences have i frightened myself in trying to frighten you it is possible strange as it may seem it is really possible i have been at the window for the last minute or two thinking there is plenty of time for thinking before the post leaves the people are only now coming out of church i have settled to put my letter on one side and to take a look at my diary in plainer words i must see what i risk if i decide on trusting you and my diary will show me what my head is too weary to calculate without help i have written the story of my days and sometimes the story of my nights much more regularly than usual for the last week having reasons of my own for being particularly careful in this respect under present circumstances if i end in doing what is now in my mind to do it would be madness to trust to my memory the smallest forgetfulness of the slightest event that has happened from the night of my interview with midwinter to the present time might be utter ruin to me utter ruin to her you will say what kind of ruin does she mean wait a little till i have asked my diary whether i can safely tell you end of book the third chapter nine recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey